0: So John 14 really is confusing, Um, and so we're going to just walk through it a little bit step by step so that then we can kind of talk a little bit about what it means kind of in relation to this day, Pentecost, how we think about who this God is and how we think about what it means for him to save us. Um, But to do that, really, first of all, we need a little bit of context So John 14 is part of this longer section, uh, chapters 13 through 17, pretty prolonged discourse from Jesus that is taking place on Jesus' last night with his disciples before he's taken and before he's crucified. And if you want to kind of trace a principal thread that runs through that whole section, it's just the simple fact that Jesus is leaving. He's going to his father, but he wants the disciples to know that even though he leaves, they're not going to be alone. That's the theme that runs through it. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 7 because it gives us a little bit more context. And then we're going to walk through starting in verse 8. So this is John 14, verse 1. Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And now we pick up with our passage, verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So here, after Jesus has talked a little bit about going to the Father, even about preparing a place for them, Philip asks, well, Jesus, show us the Father. You've got to think, like, there there have been worse questions that have been asked. Like, that's not a bad question. When you hear that, you think, yeah, that's a good desire. Jesus has been talking about going to God the Father, right? It's been on Jesus' mind and on Jesus' heart. And you kind of wonder if maybe when Philip heard that from Jesus, he had in mind these visions that the Old Testament prophets had. Um, Maybe think of a prophet like Isaiah, or Ezekiel, these prophets who had visions of the throne room of God, visions where they got glimpses of the glory of God. You've got to wonder if that's what Philip wants. Can Jesus give me this sort of vision that the prophets had? That would be an incredible thing. Maybe that's what's in his head. But Jesus' response is basically that, Philip, you don't need a vision like that because I'm in front of you. If you were in our Colossians study, if you remember from Colossians chapter 1, Paul calls Jesus the image of the invisible God. Well, here Jesus is saying that he shows the Father's character and the works that he does. He shows the Father's will and the life that he lives. He speaks the Father's words. He's the perfect recipient of the Father's love. He's the perfect lover of the Father, worshiper of the Father. What Jesus is telling Philip is that he doesn't need this big vision in order to see the character or the glory of God. Because that character, even that glory, is actually visible right there in front of him. It's visible in Jesus, in his life and in his works and in his words. So there are two sides to that that we need to actually see and think about. So Jesus is the Son, right? He's the second person of the Trinity, he is God himself which means that he's united to the Father in this confusing but glorious triune life. So as God the Father and God the Son, they're of one will with each other. They're united in the same love. And so of course he shows his Father's character. Of course he shows his glory. But let's think about the other side of that. Jesus is God and he is man. That same chapter in Colossians talks about Jesus as the firstborn of all creation. John chapter 1 says he's the word made flesh. So he's doing perfectly in his life, as a man, a job that up to this point has been left unfinished. It's the job of bearing the image of God. Right? Remember in Genesis 1 when God creates Adam and Eve, he says, let us make them in our own image. Well, that's what Jesus has done perfectly. Bearing God's image, exemplifying, reflecting his character in the world. As hard as it is for us to get our minds around this, Jesus is living and breathing proof that a human being can actually show God's character in the world. Jesus, God and man, shows the character and the will of the Father. So let's think a little bit about what we see of the Father's character and the things that Jesus does. We'll just pull some stories from John, sort of at random. Think about the cleansing of the temple, when Jesus throws out the money changers and the lenders who were in the, in the temple. Jesus cares that greed and corruption don't pollute Israel's worship, just like the Father does. Think of Jesus with the woman at the well. He's with this woman who is carrying a lot of shame, who's been stigmatized by her community, and he speaks to her with dignity, and he offers her eternal life. And when he does that, he's reflecting the Father's character. Think about Jesus raising Lazarus, his friend, from the dead. He cares about the sadness of his friends, cares about the suffering that evil has kind of wrought in the world, and he cares more than anything that his friends would see the glory of God and the hope that's in front of them, and in all of that caring and in all of those things that he does and that raising Lazarus from the dead, he's reflecting his father's will, reflecting his father's character. It's helpful for us to think about because I think sometimes we're tempted to think of the father as kind of the angry one of the crew. Right? the one who's maybe quarantined by his own holiness, the one who's got to be persuaded to love. But remember that it's actually his character that's revealed in the things that Jesus does. We need to remember who our Father is, and Jesus shows us. Maybe on the other hand, if, if we're tempted to think that Jesus just wants everyone to get along, doesn't really care about justice and righteousness, just kind of wants us to be all kind of at peace with each other, remember that Jesus shares the same love and the same zeal for righteousness and holiness and justice because he carries the same desire for the flourishing of the ones that he loves. He cares for that in the same way that the Father does. Or maybe if you ever get the sense that the Father is distant and inaccessible, just look at the ways that Jesus makes himself near to his disciples and even to the ones who would make themselves his enemies. Look at the ways that he's still doing that for us. That's the character of Jesus, but it's also showing the character of the Father. That's our Father. So if you're going to summarize verses 8 through 11, you could simply say, Jesus makes the character of the Father visible. Jesus makes the character of the Father visible. So let's read verses 12 through 14, and we'll go from there. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. All right, so we said verses 8 through 11. Clear enough. Jesus makes the character of the Father visible. Well, now Jesus seems to kind of cross a line. Truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. So any of you Christ believers out there ever ripped up a church foyer in the middle of a service? Hopefully you've been nice to a person who has been stigmatized, but you've probably never offered some sort of eternal life that came from your own being. Anyone ever raised your friend from the dead? Guess you don't believe in Jesus. And if that sounded too big, he said, no, you're going to do greater works than these. That seems even more far-fetched. And then if those things sounded a little bit too big, he says simply, all right, look, If you ask anything in my name, I'll give it to you. I'll do it. Okay, that sounds more attainable until you start to think about all the different things that you've 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 prayed for and then said, in Jesus' name, amen, and then didn't get, right? We missed on that one, too. So before we get utterly discouraged by the kind of surface level of that, let's talk about the logical flow that comes out of the verses before. It'll help us to make a little bit more sense of it. Right, so verses 8 through 11, Jesus was saying, even though the Father isn't visibly here, his disciples can see him, can see his will and his character and the things that Jesus does. So Jesus shows the character of God just as clearly as those visions that Isaiah or Ezekiel had of the the throne room. And the reason, the reason that Jesus says that that's true is because they are actually united to each other. He says, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. They're joined. Jesus shows the character of the Father because they're joined. They're united. And here he's saying that the same thing will be true of his disciples. So Jesus is going to go to the Father. He's going to no longer be visible. But in the works that the disciples will do, in their words, and especially in their love, Jesus is saying that the character and the will of Jesus is going to be visible in the world. So just like Jesus makes the character of the Father visible in the world, when Jesus leaves, Jesus' character is going to be visible in his disciples. The language that Paul is going to use for this later in the New Testament is body. He says that Jesus' disciples will be his body on earth. Now, there is a problem here. So Jesus could do that for the Father because, like we said, they're united. They're joined. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. But how could that be true for his disciples if they're not joined? If the disciples aren't joined to Jesus in the way that Jesus is joined to the Father, how can they do his works? How can they show his character? The uh, evidence that we see in the Gospels about the disciples indicates that they're a long way from that. They're a long way from showing Jesus' character. It seems really clear that they are not up for that on their own. So let's read verses 15 through 17. "'If you love me, you will keep my commandments.'" And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So at first glance, it doesn't actually sound at all like Jesus is offering any sort of a solution to that problem. There's no... Nothing there to bridge that gap between Jesus' power and works and the character of the disciples. Right? He says, you say you love me? You want to show my character and share my power? Then keep my commandments. That sounds simple, but again, remember the indications we've gotten to this point about the disciples. They have a hard time doing that. And if we're kind of putting ourselves in their, in their own shoes, we have the same problems doing that. Our character doesn't align with Jesus's. We don't reflect his will or his character in the things that we do. So the problem still stands. The answer is, if it has to be something that we muster up in ourselves, something that we do for ourselves, we still have no chance. But this this answer that Jesus gives is actually kind of picking up something that Jesus said at the end of chapter 13. The end of chapter 13, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. He said it's a new commandment. The newness of it doesn't come in the love one another part. That's really just a summary of the old commandment. That wasn't new. The newness of it was the source of that love. Jesus says, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. The newness is that this love that they're supposed to manifest in their lives and in the things that they do is actually meant to flow directly out of Jesus' love. It doesn't come from something that they muster up in themselves. It's actually something that's planted in them from Jesus. But it's Jesus' love. And the one who's going to make that love available to them as the source of power is that helper that Jesus said he and the Father would send. He calls him the spirit of truth. He's the one who's going to show you and teach you the things that you can't see. He's the one who's going to be with you, or the one who is with you and who's going to be in you. The one who's already dwelling with you but will dwell in you. He will take what belongs to Jesus and declare it to you. The beauty of this, and this gets fleshed out more um, in the rest of the New Testament, is that the Spirit didn't just come to keep the disciples company while they were lonely or miss Jesus. didn't actually just come to teach them things. He came to actually join them to Jesus so that Jesus' love, his power, his faithfulness, his righteousness, his perfection, those things that belong to him could be given to the disciples, could be given to all of those who would follow him. Again, we talked about this kind of thread that's running through these five chapters, 13 through 17. As Jesus saying, he's leaving, but he's leaving actually so that his disciples can be even closer to the presence of God than they are when they are right in front of him. And that was something the disciples could not get their heads around. How could we be nearer to God if you are the son and you have left? But his purpose was actually something even greater than that. It was to draw these people and all who would follow into communion with God. The very end of this passage, the end of John 17, Jesus is praying this beautiful prayer for his disciples, but he also says for all those who come after him. So it's a prayer that he prays for us too. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, I'll say that again because this is one of those things that's too good to be true unless God tells us that we can say it. That they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. There's a weird line in chapter 16 where Jesus says, it's actually better for you guys if I leave because the Spirit is coming. They didn't buy that. How could it be better for us if you leave? But the reason is that there's this nearness to God that actually trumps even being in the presence of Jesus incarnate. There's a being near to God that is more than just being physically next to him. It's being actually joined to him. The church's language for this is union with God through Christ. So that everything that belongs to Jesus is given to us, including the life and the love that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit share. That's confusing, but next week is Trinity Sunday, and so Stephen will make it all very clear. Hold him to that. That's what the Spirit does when he comes joins us to that beautiful mystery. In a lot of ways, I think this really flips the way that we tend to think about religion upside down. So the ancient religions in the Old Testament, um, all the different kinds of idolatry that surrounded Israel, they're all focused on appeasing the gods. So was the Greco-Roman polytheism that, that was surrounding Israel at this time in the New Testament. You need something from the gods, give them what they want. If you give them what they want, they might give you what you want, and then everyone's happy. The favor of the gods always depended on meeting their demands, or just amusing them. But that's not what Jesus is laying on his his disciples here. Yeah, they absolutely need to obey his commandments because they need to reflect his character and his love. But Jesus makes it really clear that they actually can't do this in their own strength. Think about that, the story that we read from Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. We call this the Babel paradigm sort of the a really just natural bent for humans, trying to build something out of our own strength that's going to bring us up to the heavens, trying to do something on our own power that's going to get us closer to God. But that's the paradigm that has to be flipped upside down because it doesn't work. The disciples couldn't do it. That's really clear. If we look at our own lives, we know that we can't do it. But flipping that Babel paradigm upside down is exactly what we see in Pentecost. There are even big, like, signals that tell us we're meant to see that story flipped upside down. Think about the languages. So at the Tower of Babel, God makes them all speak different languages so they can't understand each other. It confuses them and makes them all scatter, right? Pentecost is the opposite. You have people who were scattered, brought into one place, You have people who spoke different languages, brought together so that they all understand in their own language, flips the language thing upside down. But there is another way that Pentecost flips the Babel story upside down. Because Pentecost is not about humans building their way up to the heavens. It's about God coming down to dwell with them. And it's totally separate from any of the piddly little tower building efforts that we would do. God coming down despite our weakness and our frailty flips that story on its head. And what we would receive from the Spirit is so much greater than those little things that we could get for ourselves. That's why we need it. Because like Jesus said, the Spirit gives us everything that belongs to Jesus. His righteousness, His place before the Father, His inheritance, His holiness. The only way that we could possibly show Jesus' character in our world is if we are joined to Him by the Spirit. That's why He's come. Only if the Spirit fills us, joins us to him, joins us together in him, can we actually be Jesus' presence in the world, showing the world his character in the same way that Jesus showed the character of the Father. And Jesus can actually say greater works than these will we do, because now he's actually filled the world with people who are joined to him. In the Gospels, Jesus was in one place, but now it's almost as though he's been multiplied because he's joined people to him and spread us throughout the world. Yes, there is this unfathomable gap between our character and his, but Pentecost is God's answer to that problem. The Holy Spirit dwelling in us, joining us to him, so that Jesus is, remember we talked about his perfect humanity, so that his perfect humanity can heal our broken humanity. We're joined to him so that what is good and right and holy in his human nature can actually cleanse our broken humana- humanity. It does sound a little bit too good to be true. Maybe some of that is because there are two sides to this. right? So there is the instant part. The Spirit is in you. So he has already joined you to Jesus, which means that the power of sin and death that Jesus already conquered You're already freed from that. You're already brought into Jesus' resurrection life, already been dunked into this love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's not actually going to be truer in eternity than it is already now. But, and the reason that that sounds too good to be true, is that there is also the slower side to that. Paul calls the Holy Spirit a down payment. What he means by that, among other things, is that his presence and his work in our lives, is actually not the end of the Christian journey towards holiness. The Spirit dwelling in us and moving in us is the beginning, moving us towards the character of Jesus. And actually, Pentecost itself was already a Jewish feast. You see it in the Old Testament, called the Feast of Weeks, that was in itself a celebration of the first fruits of the wheat harvest. And so sort of the general interpretation for this is that Pentecost is a feast of first fruits. The Spirit comes and He's taking the first fruits from the nations, and that's true. But you can also think about the Spirit, Pentecost, first fruits. You can think about this as the Spirit kind of moving in us, and that movement in us being the first fruits of this being made like Jesus. We're meant to see this as a beginning and not an end. So even though the Spirit has joined you to Jesus, set you free from slavery to sin and death, this work of reshaping our souls, so that we no longer chase after the same things, that is still ongoing. The work of rearranging our desires so we don't chase the things of the earth, still ongoing. So we need to remember that, that there's a reality that is already established, but there is also a process that the Spirit is doing in us. And that may feel slow, but it is real. He is doing it. So in light of that, just two two applications, two takeaways. So first of all, in light of the fact that you are actually joined to Christ by the Spirit, remember that despite those places in your life or in your heart where you feel like you're bound to sin, you're not. There is a false consolation that we fall into sometimes that says, I'm just human. I can't be perfect. And that's true. You are human. Definitely true. And you're not perfect. Also definitely true. But, Jesus has taken flesh and dwelt among us. Which means that he was and is still human. And like we've said over and over again, the Spirit has joined us to his perfect humanity. We've actually been given that same perfect, unsullied, undistorted, unbound, absolutely free humanity that belongs to Jesus which means that when you're faced with these sinful desires or sinful habits or an addiction of any sort, as overwhelming as that may feel and as much as it may feel like you are bound to it, you are not. In Christ, by his grace, in his power, you can walk away from whatever that thing is in front of you that you feel like you can't get around. Whatever that thing is that feels like it has you trapped. You're not a slave to those things. You're not a slave to your desires anymore because you've been joined to Jesus. And still, when, I'm going to say when, not if, when you fail, you can still know that the same Spirit is still in you, still telling you the truth about Jesus' love that's been extended to you, still pleading for you before the Father, and above all, you can know that that union with Christ has not been broken. He's still there. Second application, second takeaway, second takeaway, Don't be afraid of the means of grace or the spiritual disciplines that God gives us. We have to get out of our heads the idea that that discipline equals legalism. So like we absolutely need to avoid that Babel paradigm that says that we can get to God by the things that we do because that's absolutely not true. But that's not what the spiritual disciplines are. We can distort them into that, absolutely. But that's not what they are. They're tools that God gives us so that we can, by the Spirit's power working through those things, have a greater capacity to receive what he gives. You think of a sailboat, right? Sails don't drive the boat. The wind does. But the wind's not going to do a whole lot to a boat if the the sails are rolled up. They have to be unfurled. You can think of these spiritual disciplines like unfurling the sails. Think about the Eucharist, right? It's a gift. You can't do anything to earn it or to deserve it the only thing that you can do is receive it as a gift. But if you come forward with your hands in your pocket and your mouth clenched shut, I'm not going to cram it in your ear. I didn't ask Alex what he would do in that situation. You still have to receive it. So fasting, prayer, reading the scriptures, meditating on them, these and all the other things that God gives us, they can be distorted into different kinds of legalism or into things that we might do to try to gain God's favor. But at their heart, what they are are gifts. Gifts that the Spirit uses, because we don't do the work, to enlarge our heart and to redirect our affections so that we can receive more and more of this transformation that he gives. So let's just end with this first fruits idea. Remember that you are still at the beginning of the Spirit's work in you. No matter where you are in the Christian life or even in your biological life, what lies in front of you is unquantifiably greater. The Spirit's presence in you and his work in you is real, but even that is a down payment for something unfathomable, and that's not discouraging. That's fantastic news. I know when I say you have a long way to go, that sounds really terrible, but it's actually fantastic news because it means that what you are right now, with all of the frustrations that come with it, is not done. God is at work in you to make you into something that you wouldn't recognize about yourself, and he will bring that to completion. So in the meantime, as that process is unfolding and as that spirit is working, Don't be afraid to unfurl your sails all the way to receive it. Don't be afraid to shift your priorities away from the little kingdoms or the little towers that we build with our money or success or popularity or skills. Don't be afraid to shift the way that you use your time to study the scriptures and to pray and to memorize and to fast and to serve. Don't let the weight of sin or shame or the accusations that they won't work discourage you from opening those sails, opening your hands to receive what the Spirit would give. Again, this thing that we've been called into, we can't do it. Like, I can't even change my own heart to desire something that's different. But the Spirit can, and He does. Even that work of un- unclenching our hands, of softening our hearts, even that work of shifting our desires so that we want Him, He will do that. So let our prayer today be for the Spirit who's already filled us to consume us. Let's long for that joy and that satisfaction, that experience of nearness to our God. Let's ask God for more of it, knowing that he delights in giving that. We only come with need, but we have a God of abundance who loves to meet us there. Amen.